Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. We have no ads, we have no sponsors. We rely on members to pay it forward and keep, keep the microphones on and conversations like the one you're about to listen to happening. It's the price of a cup of tea and maybe a scone nowadays to you, but for us it's bills paid and the platform continuing to go on. It's really simple. All you got to do is click the link that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise It's in the top of the podcast you're listening to right now. And you do get lots of extras for that. You get the podcast as quickly as I can turn them around in one consolidated feed. So you never miss one. And they're all plea free. So you don't have to listen to me beg. There's tons of content up there this week already, including a conversation we had with Sam McElwain, the co-host of Shrapnel on the Joe Biden visit to Belfast. There's uh, Killian Woods breaking down what's happening in the housing market in 2023 and into 2024. And we're going back to Gaza to talk to Innes Haman about the situation in Palestine, East Jerusalem and Israel for the latest on what's happening there on the ground. All of those, as I said, as quickly as I can turn around on the Tortoise Shack feed. All I'm asking you to do is click the link and see if there's a level that suits your budget and helps us keep going. Thanks for the support. Thanks for listening. I'll stop rabbiting on. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Lost in Implementation podcast. This podcast is a limited special for GFA 25. And the reason we're having these conversations is because 25 years on, we have a situation where the agreement is rightfully celebrated uh, for sustaining 25 years of peace. But large parts of the agreement remain unimplemented. And we want to have those sometimes difficult conversations around what needs to happen to try and push progress along. Delighted to be joined today with Daniel Holder, who is the Director of the Committee and Administration of Justice in Belfast. Daniel, you're very welcome. And today we're going to have a conversation around policing and justice. So let's get straight into it, Daniel. Uh, What does the agreement say around police? We'll start with policing. What does the agreement say around policing? Okay, well... What the, the broad piece of the Good Friday Agreement was called was, of course, to, to trigger an independent commission to review the structures for policing. And that was the commission that was headed up by, by Chris Patton. Um, it produced its report, its a blueprint for policing reform. Um, as you'll know, after the Good Friday Agreement, there were a number of other agreements to try and implement bits of the peace process that, that hadn't been implemented. And I think it's worth saying from this juncture, I mean, a lot of the Patton Commission report was implemented, but it was a huge running battle get it implemented. I mean, certainly at the beginning, even some of the commissioners themselves were saying, look, this is this has been gutted. It's not just being cherry-picked. We, we we need to go back to this. Um, one of the implementation agreements was the 2001 Western Park Agreement, where the British government did commit to, to fully implementing the, the, the patent recommendations, and that sort of brings it within the international obligations of the peace settlement that this had to be implemented. So in terms of reform of policing, Patton was the big piece. But remember, there are other things within the agreement that were also to be transformational, some of which have been implemented, some of them haven't. The obvious one is the incorporation of the European Convention on Human Rights, which was done through the Human Rights Act. That has transformed police. Code of Ethics, the SNA officers must abide by, is grounded in the European Convention of of Human Rights. Many of the sort of decision-making policies that they service procedures that they must follow or also have to be grounded in the European Convention on, on Human Rights. And that, that bit was implemented, worth noting, of course, that the UK is currently threatening to follow Vladimir Putin pulling out of the convention. Um, and that's been a continuous threat from the Tory party for, for, for quite a long period of time, despite it being a core element of the Good Friday Agreement. Um, if you look at something big that wasn't implemented, though, you're talking about the Bill of Rights, which was a bit like the Human Rights Act, it was going to be legally binding safeguards over elements of policy, and that would have included policing and justice legislation and policing and justice policy. You could have had things in there that, that safeguarded, even if the issues, if, if you look at what the Human Rights Commission, again, product of the Good Friday Agreement, had advised should be in the Bill of Rights. You're talking about things like safeguard, ending emergency law, safeguarding the right to trial by jury or the right not to have it, that's... Uh, those kind of things. So, so a bill of rights would have made a significant difference, and that's that's the obvious missing piece in the jigsaw at this particular juncture. Um, 
And what about uh, legacy? You know, what was sort of in the agreement around addressing the legacy of the past? Oof, well, there we get into big conversation. I mean, there wasn't a huge amount in the agreement. There was some provisions on victims. There was, as I've just mentioned, the incorporation of the European Convention on Human Rights, and that has been transformational in giving victims the access to courts and the access to, to justice mechanisms. There were cases taken by ourselves and others to the European Court of Human Rights back at the time of the agreement, before that incorporation had started, that found there had been failures to conduct adequate and effective investigations into uh, state killings, collusion killings, and other matters. And there were specific reforms to the justice system that were driven because of those European Court of Human Rights rulings. So the inquest system had to be changed so it could deal with legacy cases properly. There had to be changes to the prosecutorial uh, system. Um, there had to be uh, changes to the role of the police ombudsman. Um, one of the key institutions of the peace process set up separately the patent separate report, but an independent, powerful complaints body to deal with, with policing. Because of the European court cases, it was given a, a legacy role. But what the Good Friday Agreement didn't have, and that meant that these European cases had to put a lot of this infrastructure into place, what the Good Friday Agreement didn't have was any sort of truth commission or transitional other transitional justice mechanism that was that was similar. And whilst these mechanisms were put into place, it's been a running battle for for families, lawyers, their advocates, human rights groups, for well, for the last two decades really to get these mechanisms to function properly. Um, the UK government in particular has uh, and other public authorities with, with and, and actors within them with vested interests has thrown all sort of obstructions in the way of this. They're actually called the package of measures, the current legacy mechanisms of, of these focusing properly, whether it's sort of withholding funding from the police ombudsman, withholding changes to powers, whether it was blocking funding for inquests, for example, for, for a number of years. Now, the good news story is, of course, that a lot of those mechanisms have started working over the last few years better than ever before, and that's testimony to, to families and the battles they've faced. Claire, some of them have got a measure of resolution individually. Not all of them have, but but, but collectively, victims have clearly made a huge impact. And parallel to that were discussions about another peace process agreement, and that took years and years and years and years until we got to 2014, where we reached the Stormont House Agreement again, Another binding agreement within the peace process signed off by both governments. Um, indeed, the UK and Ireland completed a treaty to implement, uh, which would have implemented part of it as well, an independent commission on information retrieval, a sort of individual case-based truth recovery mechanism, not an amnesty, but one with protected statements. It would have set up an independent policing body that um, could have investigated and used full police powers to investigate. So an investigation with teeth, um, unresolved deaths during the conflict and that's whether the deaths were at the hands of the security forces at the hands of republicans at the hands of loyalists everyone and the main product of that wasn't going to so, so much be prosecutions the door was left open for that but would be family reports with uh, they were called comprehensive family reports with full disclosure of everything that had come out of a, an investigation sort of truth recovery process of course as everyone that now knows um oris johnson tore that up in, 20, uh, in early 2020 and, and, and threw it in the bin. And that, that is the first time whilst, whilst we can talk Emma, about various bits of the Good Friday Agreement that haven't been fully implemented or have been implemented but are under threat um, or bits that weren't taken forward, etc. I mean, that that's, that's the first time within our peace process that either of the governments have simply taken one of the agreements and torn it up and thrown it away. We know the reason why, because they were quite open about it. I mean, there's been plenty of misinformation about the reasons for doing it since, including a sort of pretense that the existing and proposed mechanisms were somehow uh, all about prosecutions and not about truth recovery, which simply isn't true, as I've just sort of set out. But the reason they did it was a, a campaign to end investigations into the military. The ministers openly told Parliament that this new bill, that the legacy bill that's still now at its final stages in Westminster, which will close down all of those institutions I've just mentioned, Ultimately, when it finally gets uh, set up, it'll stop any meaningful future investigation in exchange for an amnesty and a very weak information recovery body. So, I mean, legacy really is a bad news story, and it's tainted contemporary policing and its reform as well to, to the shuddering extreme of the ESNA 
using one of the mechanisms to to, to actually arrest a couple of journalists a number of years ago who in the in the Lockham Island reported and covered evidence of of human rights violations. So legacy really has been a shadow over the whole policing project, but over the whole implementation of the agreement and the implementation of some of the uh, subsequent agreements that were that were to, to pick up the pieces of things that weren't dealt with in the original Good Friday Agreement, such as the Stormatose Agreement. Yeah, I mean, you're right to point out that, um, you know, tearing up of the Stormont House Agreement really is the first openly, uh, you know, we're just going to unilaterally just take ourselves out of this uh, from one of the co-guarantors uh, that we've had. Usually they just sign up to an agreement and then don't bother to actually implement it or deliver on it properly without, without openly saying that they're not doing it. Um, but I just wanted to go back to the point around the lack of transitional justice within the original Good Friday Agreement, because I heard quite an interesting perspective recently that was from young people that I was interviewing, where they talked about perceiving the Good Friday Agreement actually as more of a ceasefire agreement, because there was such a emphasis on, uh, you know, the release of prisoners and ending the violence. And it was very much about saving lives, which of course the agreement has done. But because there wasn't that transitional justice element to it, it's not necessarily perceived as being an agreement that built the kind of social cohesion, reconciliation, and um, uh, the kind of peace that we really would co- constitute as a positive peace. And I wonder about your views on that. Would you say the the agreement uh, was lacking in some spaces around the transitional justice element? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you've, you've summarized it very well. I mean, there are many of the elements in the agreement that you would see within other conflict resolution processes, um, the sort of disarmament of armed groups, demilitarization, um, institutional reform, the release of, of prisoners with conflict-related uh, convictions, but no formal transitional justice mechanism. It is the, the, the gaping hole and, the, and essentially 20 years of, of debate um, and negotiation and discussion ensued at various junctures with various proposals on the table um, to try and come up with a model which would gain the broadest level of consensus at all. And that took until 2014. You then had considerable foot dragging by the UK government to actually implement that, despite repeated commitments, not just domestically, but also to the international community, particularly the Committee of Ministers of the Council of Europe that oversees the obligations under the European Convention on on, on Human Rights. Um, and you also had attempts to roll back and water down what had been agreed at, at Stormont House, most notably. And this is a theme throughout the whole transfer of justice, but particularly in legacy, the and British government's insistence on what you could call a national security plus veto. Um, now, what what this was, just to explain, was originally, obviously, you had this powerful investigative mechanism proposed, the historical investigations unit that would be independent of everyone, would investigate unresolved killings. Uh, and in addition to the potential for a justice route, it, it, its main product was comprehensive family reports with full disclosure about all the information that had been recovered about, about what had happened. Well, UK ministers, NAO ministers, wanted to grant themselves power to, to essentially censor and, ve- uh, and redact those reports. And the grounds on which they suggested were, first of all, the, the national security interests of the United Kingdom, which is an extremely broad, undefined term, um, and there was no attempt to define it in the legislation or other bits of legislation, although to be fair to judges, both domestically and internationally, they have really started to put parameters on this concept to prevent states from simply using it as a as a sort of uh, veto to cover up human rights and uh, abuses and violations. Um, in this instance, though, it was a national security plus veto because it was also going to allow ministers to have fallen outside how the, even the risk a judge might to it falls outside of the first category to actually remove any information about the intelligence or security branches of the we saw on military, you talk about MI5, you talk about military intelligence, you talk about IEC special branch. So essentially some of the most controversial areas of security policy during the the um, conflict that have been the, the, the recent focus of the sort of eight 900 pages of troops recovery we had just last year from the police ombudsman's office uh, in, in relation to elusive um, behaviours uh, um, in various geographical parts of Northern Ireland between elements of, uh, of policing and, and loyalist paramilitary. So you, 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 you essentially had an attempt to, to water down that Stormont House agreement, and, but you then had a 
push back on that and, and when you get to 2013, you have the new decade, new approach agreement, which you remember re-established Scotland having mm. the, the three-year collapse. Pretty clear commitment in that from the UK government. Same was given to the international community, but NDNA said we will introduce the Stoneland House legislation within 100 days. And instead, how long came Boris tore up the agreement uh, 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 and we're left with this uh, this bill that's been, um, that, that has caused international alarm as well as a lot of pain for victims uh, domestically, both the, the UN experts and, and, and bodies and Council of Europe ones that said this simply isn't. Um, human rights compatible or lawful for the UK to do. And I think the alarm as well. I think there's still a lot of focus on our conflict and, and victims' rights and, and about the rights of victims, but it's also about what are called, what's called in human rights law guarantees of non-recurrence, i.e. that you have accountability to prevent things from happening again. Pat, particular patterns of security policy um, were successful in implementing the rule of law that's good. If there were patterns of security policy that were outside the lower and fueled conflict, it's also um, part of the picture. And then there needs to be accountability of that to prevent it from happening again. Think of the, the patterns of the type of torture techniques that we used here against the hooded men and others, and then them popping up in Iraq and other places because there wasn't accountability mm-hmm. here. That's what you need a transitional justice mechanism from. And it was absent from the Good Friday Agreement. And I'm just um, reflecting what you're saying there about this legacy bill and how how traumatic it is for victims and survivors uh, that they're still trying to uh, get truth and justice all these years later. And I'm conscious that we're celebrating the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, but for many families that are survivors uh, or who are still trying to get justice for their loved ones who were killed during the Troubles, it might not be as great a celebration in many ways because they're still fighting so hard just to try and uh, have any kind of semblance of of justice or truth. And that must be quite difficult um, in terms of the issues we have here, right, intergenerational trauma. And we know, obviously, in terms of um, the mental health of this particular area of Northern Ireland uh, in general is a lot worse uh, compared to the rest of the United Kingdom that we have the highest rates of suicide and that's trickling down now into our younger generations as well. And so in that regard, um, it would be great if we could move into a space of transitional justice. And I'm wondering how we compare, you know, Northern Ireland in terms of on a global international scale to some other peace um, agreements and how they've approached transitional justice. Are we are we behind or uh, how would you frame us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're behind. Obviously, in other places, the the, the, the scale of things can be a lot bigger. Um, but for directly affected people, clearly the scale personally is enormous, as you say. And for a lot of the victims, time really is running out because of the the, the passage of time for for families. And I mean, other bits and pieces of settlement that haven't been implemented are things like the the poverty strategy that was committed to, and the St Andrews Agreement that would have gone a long way to addressing some of the socioeconomic issues if it was properly um, that have also found some of the sort of tragic patterns made reference to um, I mean when the UK first produced its what was called a, what's it called? it's called a command paper it's sort of the policy paper that precedes a piece of legislation and set out the type of amnesty they wanted um, one of our, our colleagues in the sort of CAG model bill team Professor Lee, Louise Malander who's an international expert and and amnesties ran a comparator exercise to see just how what was being proposed. Uh, it was one of the the, the amnesty the the Northern Ireland office was proposing was actually broader in scope than that brought in the general August up in the shape. Um, in Chile, and I mean, can I, can I say amnesty is seen as globally uh, as one of the worst examples. Yeah, this was broader in scope. Now it was stung a bit by that criticism, and they they, they made some amendments to the bill and the bill what they're putting forward, but it's very cosmetic. Um, I mean, now that the amnesty is is not absolute, it's conditional, but it's conditional with a, shall we say, a conspicuously low threshold. Um, that's extremely easy, um, uh, and you don't, you don't actually have to provide any new information at all. Mm-hmm. The benefit of this, it's it's a benefit from the the amnesty that's that's being proposed. And it, it just, a, it, just, I suppose, it is important to say that 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 not everything is lost with this, in the sense of. Uh, this looks like it will get through Westminster, UK Parliament, which means the British government will put it into law um, for a time period. At least the the Kestama UK opposition have said they will repeal it if they get in, and that could be 
less than a sort of year away. But 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 really, the the battle against this bill will move very swiftly into the courtroom, um, and it's very likely to be unlawful. So whether whether this bill will be implemented at all is a is another question. Um, I think in terms of international comparisons, we don't fare very well on that question of impunity, um, i.e. The, the failure to hold a, in some areas anyone to account for at a high level for for violations that that occurred um during the conflict we we really don't fare well and the type of body that's being proposed by the NIO just seems to have fewer and that that is in this legislation has really f- fewer powers and far more limited independence than not only what you'd have seen in other situations internationally but also what is minimally required by international legal obligations. And what about the role of the co-guarantor? So we've spoken a bit about the British government who obviously uh, are trying to unilaterally tear up Stormont House and are, are likely to be able to do so through this bill. What about the role of the Irish government and what they've played in terms of the um, implementation of the agreement itself and subsequent agreements? Yeah, well, they are, as you say, they are co-guarantors. They're the other party to the treaty. One of the supreme weaknesses um, within the Good Friday Agreement is it doesn't actually have a formal legally binding dispute resolution mechanism. So if you can't trust the UK to abide by the commitments that it's made, and most of them do fall to the UK, there were some felt the Irish government, including mirroring the Human Rights Commission, the European Convention of Human Rights Implementation, things like that. But but going back, if you, if you don't implement, if the UK does not implement commitments that fall to it, there is no obvious court usually can be gone to um, for breaches to the Good Friday Agreement. I mean, no wonder the EU, in terms of the Brexit negotiations, insisted on everything being absolutely legally binding. Uh, and I mean, uh, uh, and having an independent international court that could oversee the implementation of what was agreed, because you can't just do things, oh, well, we'll trust someone to, to, to abide by the commitments they've made. And we've, we've very clearly seen over the last couple of years that the UK's not being a reliable partner to that end. Um, the mechanisms available to the Irish government in relation to the legacy issue are somewhat more powerful than the Irish government has been incredibly vocal and has taken a very strong position against what Boris Johnson's government did um, in introducing this legacy bill. Um, they have flagged up the, the flaws, the lack of human rights compliance of the bill and the serious concerns. I should say it's not just the Irish government as well, although they obviously have a key role, but the... Um, Governments across the Council of Europe area, who, who sit within the Committee of Ministers of the Council of Europe, have uh, passed a number of um, significant decisions condemning the uh, walking away, the tearing up of the Stormont House Agreement, the movement away from it, the movement away from the human rights complaint, set of proposals for dealing with the legacy of the conflict. The option the Irish government will have once the UK Legacy Bill completes its passage in Westminster is to go straight to the European Court of Human Rights. Over this now, um, there'll be lots of individual families wanting to litigate as well, but the passage to an international court, like the European Court of Human Rights, would take some time, whereas the Irish government could probably get there very, very quickly um, and could get there very directly by taking what's called an interstate case, which is when a state takes a case against another Mm. member state in the Council of Europe. Now, there's precedent for this. Ireland versus the UK, obviously, is the title of it. Um, and the first case was, um, the, but the, the first case is, well, um, the, the best known one is is on torture. Um, the case that was taken about the use of the five techniques on the Woodhead Man and others um, in the 1970s. There are other interstate cases at the moment, most of them against the departing state of Russia, of Georgia, Ukraine, uh, and others. However, it's it's very much in the the, the Irish government's position is this is under active consideration. Um, but um, from our perspective, they really need to do this because, I mean, this is a, a, a breach of the Good Friday Agreement, this legacy bill, because it tears off the um, remedies through the European Convention of Human Rights mm-hmm. that were guaranteed within the Good Friday Agreement. It's a breach of the Stormont House Agreement uh, and the treaty that was, the related treaty that was drafted up with the Irish government for that. And it relates to human rights violations. Um, of Irish and British citizens and others on, on this island. I mean, the, 
the Irish government really does have a, a responsibility to step up and ensure this doesn't become law for our sake, but also because of the international impact it'll have. The, the UK may have lost a fair bit of power over, over, over the 20th century and indeed in more recent years with the whole Brexit stuff, but it's still um, one of the permanent members of the UN Security Council, um, one of the seen as one of the, the advanced democracies and things like that, a state like that setting the precedent for such a poor and weak transitional justice mechanism, which is really being put into play quite, quite openly sometimes with a, with a view to ending investigations into the military, sets a really dangerous precedent for, for the rest of Europe and indeed beyond. You were mentioning there about the lack of a dispute mechanism. I think that's a really good point to, to bring up. I always thought that also a big flaw was the lack of a proper implementation strategy and uh, with hard timelines and, you know, a third party monitor to actually uh, monitor the implementation of the agreement itself. And so I wonder when we're talking about the lack of a dispute mechanism, um, the, the absence of transitional justice, uh, this whole conversation around reform has become quite vocal in Northern Ireland recently, especially with the Alliance Party vying to try and get that deputy first minister seat if they can uh, change the rules. And I wonder if it's um, worth considering that the idea of reform, I mean, some would see the agreement um, as being almost untouchable, I think. But in reality, it's a living document. It has review built in and legal documents like this should, in my view, I think, be able to evolve and adapt as society does. What's your view on that? Yeah, I suppose there's two elements to it. One is we really see the, the urgent need to implement the outstanding commitments, including revisiting things that that have not been done in good faith. In the, the policing area, there's one, well, that's obvious examples. So I just give one, which is the whole issue of plastic bullets. They had never fired anywhere on the island of Britain, but used here to devastating effect, um, including um, significant number of killings, many of which were of of, of children. They, they, the pattern review um, instructed that an alternative was sought to a plastic bullet. What we've ended up with is the alternative being another plastic bullet. Mm. And it's just a bit different and has a different name, but is a plastic bullet. Um, those kind of things need to be revisited and, and implemented. Um, in terms of reform of the institutions, I mean, there is a mechanism within the agreement for this, and the institutions have already been changed from their original form. I mean, they were changed very, very significantly at St. Andrews. Uh, and actually, some of the, the problems that we now face date, date back to some of those changes that were, were largely done to accommodate the DP coming on board into the First Minister's post. Um, there's been a fair bit of discussion about the, uh, and that's understandable, in, in, in recent months where you don't actually have a Speaker or First and Deputy First Minister about reforming the processes of that. Our starting point is actually different, really, because... When the institutions were up and running, like from 2020 to 2022, mm -hmm. it really weren't functioning properly. And um, there's actually a flurry at the very end where, where a, lot of st a lot of good stuff did get done. Yeah, like but, a day. <laughs> yeah. Um, but one of the problems we found is as follows. You have a power sharing arrangement and you want to protect the rights, including the, 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 the counter-majoritarian thing, you protect the rights of minorities. But that actually has a specific meaning in human rights law. If you look back at what was originally agreed in the Good Friday Agreement, what we were going to have was objective, legally binding human rights standards mm -hmm. that would deal with some of the issues that were abuses of power in the past to prevent them happening again. And that was to be centered on the Northern Ireland Bill of Rights, which was going to be supplementary to those civil and political rights, like right to a fair trial, freedom of mm -hmm. expression, that are already in the European Convention, and would add very specific things that would enter local circumstances. So the right to housing is an obvious one. That doesn't mm -hmm. the state build a house fit as a myth for every single um, and that is that wouldn't be necessary either. Um what the right to housing means is it prevents extreme actions, scream and discriminatory actions from ministers and, and, and other executive uh, authorities. It would prevent a return to things like gerrymandering, not building mm -hmm. Uh, trying to consolidate single identity communities, that, that, that kind of thing, and that, that re-emerged during the, the period of, of devolution, particularly since that were raised by the UN in places like, places like, like North Belfast and, and housing inequality for, for Catholics there and the reasons behind it. You'd have had this objective constraint 
no minister could have done this or that. And to give you an, a, another example that you'll be uh, very familiar with, Emma, is the citizenship provisions. Oh, yes. In the agreement that, that you could be British or Irish or both. And that you can't really interpret those words as meaning what, that, that everyone's British. Um, although that's precisely, obviously, as you know, what the Home Office... Uh, they, they do try. They do try. They do try. But there was a second part to that right. That right was going to be incorporated within the, the Bill of Rights for Northern Ireland. But there was a second part to it, which was that you could be British or Irish or both, that there would be no differential treatment or detriment, regardless of that choice. That means equality of treatment. British and Irish citizens were constitutionally going to have a guarantee under the Bill of Rights to quality of treatment. You could not have done on Brexit with that because of the differentials it creates between British and Irish citizens, let, let alone the, the huge problems it creates for uh, migrant communities um, who would be worst hit by this. But had that Bill of Rights been in place, it would have legally prevented some of the worst excesses of the sort of hard Brexit model that's hardened the boundaries between different groups of citizens here. So we were promised objective rights-based safeguards. And by the way, these were going to be interwoven within the mechanisms within the Assembly. So the Petition of Concern mechanism, which was to be the key safeguard over legislation, not infringing the, the rights to quality and the broader human rights of um, people within this jurisdiction. What was supposed to happen was that every time a Petition of Concern was tabled. It wasn't supposed to be no criteria, but it, that it didn't really matter what, what the petition of concern was about. It was supposed to be that the petition of concern was measured against, um, did the measures or the legislation or whatever it was infringe either the European Convention of Human Rights or the Bill of Rights or other sort of human rights obligations. So the Bill of Rights was at the centerpiece of constraining actions by legislature and it would have been legally binding, it would have constrained actions by ministers and it's objective because it's international human rights law it wasn't designed or, or sort of skewed to this jurisdiction it's what internationally um, is in place and that would have meant that you could have had a normal governance structure where decisions were where decisions were made essentially by uh, a majority like in any legislature and uh, an assembly and the safeguard would really be based about, well, does the legislation infringe the rights um, of anyone? Now, there were some attempts to bring that to the foreign DNA and the petition of concern mechanism, which had been massively abused, was strengthened. So some criteria was introduced, more than two parties, things like that, that it, that it is supposed to trigger a special committee that examines equality and human rights. But it didn't go as far as most of the parties that NDNA wanted, which would have been for an independent body, namely the Human Rights Commission that was set up by the Good Friday Agreement, to actually have a decision-making role. Did the legislation breach the Ballarates and the ECHO, or did it not? And if it didn't, then it could have carried on. If it did, then that would have been the the, the safeguard against um, bad legislation that abused rights. What we've got instead are a series of political vetoes vested in larger parties. And this was brought in at St Andrews, so mm -hmm. there was a provision brought in um, that's been mostly used by the DUP, but like the petition of concern, whereby individual ministers could no longer take decisions that were either significant or controversial. And look, those words are really flexible, aren't they? I mean, mm -hmm. um, anything can be controversial if it's politically contested. Mm -hmm. um, and we know um, things that are, well, or that have been embedded international norms, such as gay rights for many, many years, are controversial here because they're contested by one of the uh, political parties. And that, that's a live example. This veto was used to block progress on same-sex marriage equality. Um, so it's not that, that's not a hypothetical example. That's a, a real example. It's also used to block regulations briefly, uh, to block progress on women's reproductive rights, to block progress on an Irish language strategy. To so, And the threat of it just sitting there that individual ministers can't take decisions that it instead being referred to the um, full executive committee. And I mean, the exception to this, by the way, was if something had been agreed in a program for government. Mm. Well, if you haven't had a program of government agreed for a decade, and even when the institutions were sitting, which just meant this veto is essentially derailed our sharing in any meaningful way. It's made it dysfunctional. Something that was meant to be an objective tool that would prevent breaches of the human rights of people would prevent 
measures that run against equality essentially is a mechanism that can that has been replaced with a subjective veto that can be used by the opponents of equality to stymie progress even when there is a majority in the assembly and a majority in the Northern Ireland executive, i.e. the cabinet of ministers, who agree to the particular measure. To us, rolling that back and introducing what was originally intended under the agreement would be the, the core prize of a, of a reform pro- process that, that take place, not replacing the Good Friday Agreement, but it's, it's, it's envisaged within the agreement. And these, but these sort of transitional mechanisms, like the power sharing thing at Stormont, and internationally, and never... Never usually are meant to last forever, and they're meant to be reformed. They're meant to they're, they're meant to evolve. Um, quite clearly, what's there at the moment doesn't work, um, and and that's been apparent for many many years. Yeah, I mean, you really summarise just how dysfunctional our political system is, and um, you know the fact that we have had uh, Stormont down for forty percent of its of its lifetime. You know, you can't really sell that as a success story, and so I think. The, what you're talking about there in terms of the vetoes is a really important point because perhaps mechanisms that were intended to be good, um, you know, have been manipulated and distorted into to be in the opposite uh, because of the the way the system is set up. Um, I'm just wondering about going back to the future. Uh, I suppose what do you think is is necessary uh, in terms of legacy and policing? Like, what are the necessary reforms or steps that should be taken going forward? But in terms of legacy, the first of all, the UK bill needs to be defeated, and hopefully it will be in the courts. And as an interim step, the existing mechanisms that are actually delivering truth recovery like never before, sort of rate, includes the forthcoming reports from Canova. I mentioned the ombudsman, the inquest system, mm-hmm. the other sort of mechanisms need to be allowed to do their work until um, what is internationally being called for and what was agreed um, is implemented, which was the Stormont House Agreement. Um, I mean, like, sometimes you get very frustrated. Sometimes you know, well, the Stormont, Stormont House agreement didn't 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 work. Didn't work. well, hang on a minute. It's, it's not that it it's not that it didn't work. It's that Boris Johnson tore it up and and refused to implement it. If if the Tories tear up the Human Rights Act, hopefully that won't happen. But it's been repeatedly threatened. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in any case, even if it did happen, it wouldn't mean the Human Rights Act had failed. It means someone had torn up their obligations, and um, so I think we need to be careful. And I think we could we, we don't have time. I mean, Stormont House Agreement took a long time to negotiate, and of course there'd be other models, and of course there'd be other models ultimately we may favour. But there ain't time to negotiate for another ten years and come up with some other magic solution. And we need to actually get on with implementing what was agreed at this stage, but implement it in a human rights compliant manner. Um. In terms of policing as well, um, we have witnessed some backsliding over the last few days that's concerned us. We ran a, we ran a big conference in, in Queens last year just looking at the PSNA 20 years on and then there was a reciprocal conference. We did this in the North-South basis with a CISPR organization, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. We had a conference in Dublin as well looking at the, uh, at the uh, steps that are taking place now to bring a level of accountability to the Guardi. Um, I think in in terms of policing, concerns would be um, that there isn't enough respect being given to the oversight mechanisms, and um, we've seen that with the introduction of things like spit and bite guards. Um, even though they, they, the reports from the board raised serious concerns about them, and the SNA pushed on regardless, we do want to see things in the patent settlement fully implemented, I've mentioned the plastic bullet thing mm-hmm. as well. Um, but overall, I think we need a stock take back the model of human rights by policing, preventing backsliding around it. We've found that the, that the way the SNI are developing policy in the moment's a little haphazard. We've also found elements of policing policy um, that still really haven't moved on. So we did a report last year on hate expression on public space. And this was to, to match a recommendation, recommendation 15 of the independent judge-led review, Judge, judge Maradon's review into hate crimes legislation. What I'm talking about here, what, what's hate expression in public space? Well, I'm talking about graffiti. You didn't like sort of graffiti that advocates genocide against the main communities, K-A-T, K-A-H, that, that type of thing. 
we're also talking about items that are placed on lampposts and publicly and, and in other places. I mean, that could be things that are overtly hate, overtly racist themselves, like Nazi flags, um, Klux Klan flags, apartheid South Africa flags, Confederacy flags. We've seen examples of all of those. Or you're talking about other items that, that might have a broader meaning. I mean, like they, um, that, that are usually a, a normal item, like the Union flag, but if it's stuck up outside the only Catholic school or the only uh, black family, the house of the only black family living in the street, very clearly it's been used as a form of racist, self-sectarian intimidation. Um, yes, and they do have a service procedure on this, but it's really entirely grounded in public order considerations, which is profoundly wrong. It sort of puts us in a pre-parades commission situation where whoever generates the the greatest threat can actually prevail. Um, and, and and that's a concern, A, that paramilitary expression on, on public property will actually be protected by the police on the grounds that uh, third parties will be stopped from taking it down on the grounds that the paramilitaries would have a riot if it was taken down. And that's... Yeah. And they, don't, they don't think we shouldn't be trying to... It's not politically attainable and uh, to, to try and resolve every issue of... Um, expression in public space and obviously there's an interface there with free we don't have expression for for political expression and um, i think what we need to do is actually focus on the most harmful types and the most harmful types are things that constitute sectarian and racist intimidation yeah that's not factored into the psna policy at all so there's a lot of there's a lot of outstanding reform on issues and particularly the the placing of um, the policing response to paramilitary intimidation, housing intimidation, is a significant area of concern. That's still rife. And there's an approach of essentially moving the, verifying the threat and moving the victim and rarely taking actions against the source of the organization that's the that, that's the source of the threat. I mean, 25 years on from um, peace agreement, that really makes a mockery of the rule of law, not applying the law on those uh, two particular circumstances. We have seen some progress, but also some concerning moves in the in the most controversial area of policing for, for many, many years here, which is the covert policing and the the um use of informants and um not so much the actual use of informants, of course, every single research and service and law enforcement body on the planet does that. It's the question of when you use them. It has to be proportionate. It has to be only to uh, against serious crime, not uh, against sort of lawful protest and things like that. But more specifically in this jurisdiction, the question has always turned to, well, when the police legitimately has informants, lawfully has informants, what are they allowed to do? Uh, uh, what conduct are they allowed to engage in, in particular? What criminal conduct are they allowed to engage in and um, uh, not potentially face the, the rule of law for this, the system that was in place, obviously, extremely unsatisfactory allowing serious criminality by informants, which has been well documented in, in various reports. And I think within the PSNA, they've made significant progress. They're not totally there in terms of what Patton said. They've made very significant progress in, in recent years in actually declassifying part of the policy. It's in the recent Bonadino Human Rights Report. Uh, and then also um, raising some parameters on that and having a much more uh, formal sort of procedure that's, and there's also legislation that regulates it. But one of the issues around this is we have a hugely differential uh, approach to leasing of armed groups on the basis of what side of the community you're on with the, with the arrangements that were post St Andrews. And if they were put into place as part of a transition, well, it's really time to revisit that transition, whereby the policing of what was called net. Covert national security policing was taken off the PSNA or primacy for it anyway, and was given to the security service MA5 with their base in um, just outside East Belfast. There, um, now the problem with that is they sit entirely outside the accountability framework set up by the Patent Commission, and therefore uh, they're not even amenable to things like unemployment law and freedom of information. Same way the police are, um, and therefore you've got a significant accountability gap created by the arrangement. You've also got a huge differential in uh, just crude resource terms as to how paramilitary groups, um, Republican and loyalist paramilitary groups are policed. I mean, all the resources that go into my five are solely focused on 
on national security threats, which we've all so always been told only encompasses Republicans. By that way, the they security threat, which was the, the threat terrorism threat level, I think is the official term that was tightened um, earlier in the week, also solely relates to national security threats. It relates to threats against state targets and police officers, and obviously they're very extremely important matters. Um, but equally extremely important are threats to members of the public who, who live in areas that are still under, say, Lewis paramilitary control and face housing intimidation, who face other forms of intimidation and threats. Now, none of that's factored into this threat assessment. It's still a sort of national security focus for how you deal with armed groups. I mean, they should never have been armed groups, but, I mean, 25 years on for a, for a peace settlement, uh, not having any... Uh, I mean, there are executive strategies to end and, and some successes and sort of trying to end uh, organized criminal activity by paramilitary groups. Um, but, I mean, if you look at the executive strategy for attacking paramilitarism, the like racism element, despite the links, been well identified between elements of loyalism and racist effects for, mm-hmm. for decades, bring in that strategy on that issue. And despite the ongoing problems of housing intimidation, there's nothing in that strategy that addresses that. That that issue either so, so so, very significant gaps, a lot to consolidate, a lot of progress that has been made on policing, and we need to make sure there isn't backsliding on that. But 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 still, plenty to do at this juncture. Yeah, I mean, on the paramilitaries, I think, you know, to a large degree, it almost feels normalized. Uh, as a society, you know, we have these ads on TV that are akin to safe driving ads about uh, the control of paramilitaries. Uh, and we have, uh, as you say, many people still being put out of their homes due to paramilitary intimidation. Uh, and rather than seeing the full disbandment of these groups, you know, we, we will sometimes often see those who represent paramilitaries actually platformed uh, on our TV screen through, for politics uh, as if they're legitimate stakeholders. So there's quite a large scale problem in terms of addressing that kind of legacy issue around the, yeah, the continued and, and existence. the chill fact of a civil society as well. I mean, this is this is still not a place that, that tolerates dissent. I mean, there's a concept of regime messaging and 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 but usually in dictatorships and other places where only official messages can go on um, in public space and anyone who takes them down will be under threat. But that's that's the reality here. In many towns, you might not agree with a. A, a message and a and a placard um, that's been put on public property by by the bank or the protection of paramilitary group, but you cannot take it down. You cannot even put up an alternative message next to it because you'd be under threat. And uh, that it, it, that is that is the reality for many people. Twenty five years on from the trade agreement, um, these issues really still haven't been tackling. It's not just, of course, a policing issue. Um, there are many roles for public authorities, not least the government authorities that own the property. A lot of this stuff is 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 put up on. Um but we do need I mean, even if there is a a dialogue and transition approach, I mean, twenty five years long the down the line here, a lot of people are gonna transition have already transitioned. There still needs to be no tolerance of intimidation and other unlawful activity. And there needs to be a a process and um, within how public authorities react to such actions that actually seeks to eliminate them rather than simply manage them. Mm-hmm. And just to bring this uh, to a close, Daniel, I wonder if you could tell me what the Good Friday Agreement means to you, personally. Look, um... Yeah, see, you see, the 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 more difficult question to last, and more <laughs> focused on the the sort of policy things. I mean, I think overall, um, the agreement has delivered relative peace, um, but there are huge gaps in it. There are huge gaps in its implementation, and there were huge gaps in its provisions. Um, so, I mean, the the, the the other question that's that's often being asked at the moment is where do you think we will be in, in 25 mm-hmm. years' time? I think that's even more of a, a difficult question, so I'm glad you didn't ask that one. Because I think it's quite difficult at the moment to see beyond the next five years. Yeah. I think things aren't aren't that predictable. It's it's difficult to see 
we, we are potentially at the stage where the institutions and Stormont will not survive. Burn. Um, won't be re-established. Or they might be re-established on the basis of significant reform. And sure, there's, a, there's, a, there's some sort of hope of uh, of stability. But that all that could have been done over the last few years, but the political will in London hasn't been there. Uh, to do that, to reform the institutions, to put to put back in, I suppose one of some of the the, the human rights elements of the Good Friday Agreement. Um, coming back to your question, which I've kind of evaded a wee bit there, <laughs> I think from a CAJ perspective, which is where I'm speaking from, my predecessors, and it would be remiss not to, because I wasn't here at the time of the mm-hmm. uh, in CAJ at the time of the agreement, got a lot into the agreement. I mean, Mary Robinson made this uh, statement on a number of times about the, the, the centrality of human rights and equality to the Good Friday Agreement, and it runs like a string all the way through it. Um, and I think that was very important. Um, and the impact of what was done by CAJ and many others, no doubt at, at that time, and getting human rights mainstreamed within, agreement, within the agreement was so important and certain things that are in it that were implemented and I'll flag up again the implementation of the European Convention on Human Rights which has given a remedy to so many families and not just in legacy cases but in, in many many other cases and has, uh, and has structured how uh, a prevention of uh, abuses of power as well and that has been absolutely transformation um, but it really is time to get the rest of it implemented Um uh, the, the human rights commitments with it within the agreement, and um, there's clearly things are, particularly the way power operates has has badly unravelled without that. And that's a it's a good point to leave it on. Time to get it implemented. I agree, Daniel. Thank you so much for taking the time to have this discussion. Uh, really great to have your expertise and knowledge on this. And with that, I forget to wrap. Thank you all for listening to the Lost Implementation Podcast. See you next time.